Welcome to part two of our series called Rooted. And this series is based on uh, two particular scriptures, both written by the Apostle Paul uh, and both written as a letter to an early church. The first one we looked at last week in Colossians 2, where Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Uh, and we looked at that one last week. This week, we're going to look at the, the letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And he said this in Ephesians 3, verse 14. He said, for this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, last week, we looked at, at, at our God, that God is the creator, that God is the almighty, he's the all-powerful, he's the all-knowing, uh, he's you know, the eternal, um, and yet he desires, this was incredible, and yet he invites us and he desires that we call him Father. And what's amazing, think about this, God the creator who spoke into existence creation with his words. God almighty, all powerful, who, who the miracle worker, the, the power that, that God holds and wields is unfathomable. And yet this same all powerful, almighty creator, God invites us, as Paul said, to be a part of his family, that we would, he invites us into relationship to call him father, in fact, last week we looked at, he invites us to call him daddy, which is Abba, daddy, father, intimacy. He invites us into intimacy and relationship with him. It's amazing. Paul goes on, and, and both of these, these verses that we looked at last week in Colossians 2 is a prayer that Paul is praying for the church. He's giving us insight and giving the church insight into his prayers for the saints, for the church. And he goes on, he says the same thing. I pray, he's giving them insight again into, into what he's praying for. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's praying that they would be strengthened where? In their most inner being. See, he's not praying that they'd be strengthened in the fruit. He's like, this is, you could call this a New Year's prayer if you'd like. But he's not praying that they're going to bear more fruit. Not praying that they're going to have more strength, external strength. He's praying that they're going to have strength in the innermost being. Which is why we are calling this series Rooted. Because you know this, I know this. We're in an agricultural society in many ways. Where we know that the strength of the root system determines the fruit. That a healthy root system in a tree is going is to guarantee strong, better, healthier fruit, more fruit. That a, a strong, healthy root system in, in grain is going to produce more fruit. We know that it's all about the roots and the healthy root system. Yet, in, in your life and in my life, we tend to focus on the fruit or the results. And we, we, we tend to, to focus on external things around us. And we don't often focus on even in our own lives, the root system. And I really felt going into 2023 that as your pastor of my prayer for, for you as, and, and for our church is that we would be strengthened in our roots. We would get rooted and strengthened in the innermost being. As John would pray for the church, and he, he wrote this in, in 3 John chapter 2, he says, he says, I pray that you would prosper and be in health. Even as your soul, your inner being, prospers. In other words, he says, I'm praying that you're going to have fruit. 
But that fruit, and he ties it immediately to, the, to your soul prospering, to you, you prospering inside in your innermost being, and prospering in particular in your relationship and your anchoring our relationship with God. Jesus would say similar things, and he said, he said man, storms are going to come. But the house that's going to stand and withstand the storm is the one that is that is built has a strong foundation built on the rock, which is the word. And, and again, in the innermost, being strengthened, rooted to the core, especially in our relationship with God and in our faith. Paul goes on and he says this, continues his prayer, and he says, "I pray that you and here's the word being rooted, okay, and established in love." may have power, we, we like that part, don't we? We like the power part, don't we? We want, we are, I'm praying for power, come on. We want power, you want more power financially, don't you? You want more power in relationships, you want more power in health, you want more, we want more, we like the power, we like power. But he says, he's tying it, I'm praying that you're gonna have power, but that power again is gonna be tied to you being rooted and established in love, which is interesting, we'll get to that in a moment, together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And then he says this, and this, this part of the verse really stood out to me. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of of God. Now, why this stood out to me is because whenever I read the Bible, and I encourage you, whenever you read the Bible, you do your devotions, whenever you read any, any scripture, and I encourage you, highly encourage you to do that, that when you read it, don't just read it as it's, it's just the Bible, or it's the Bible. Read it and ask yourselves a, a series of questions because the power of what is written. Can, can really be revealed if you answer some of these questions. Number one, ask these questions, who wrote it? And why is that important? Okay, because you have to remember, when Paul wrote this scripture, okay, when Paul wrote these verses, he wasn't writing the Bible. He didn't know he was writing the Bible. In fact, these wouldn't be included in what we know as the Bible now for another 300 years. He wasn't writing the Bible. He was writing a letter to the church. And, and you need to know, okay, who wrote it? To whom did he write it? Okay, and the context around which it was written. And when you, when you understand those things, you can typically get a revelation. For instance, when I ask those questions about this verse, there's a number of things that just kind of catch my attention. It's interesting to me because Paul, if you know the history of Paul, Paul grew up believing in God. Paul grew up as a Pharisee, being trained as a Pharisee or a scribe or a rabbi or, or part of the upper council, the smartest of the smarts, a teacher. In fact, some scholars believe that he was being groomed to be the next, potentially the next high priest. So this, he not only was being groomed and educated in these areas, but he was, he was highly skilled, highly knowledgeable. That means that he would have memorized the majority of, of the Old Testament, the majority of, especially the first five books, he would have memorized that. He would have been very acquainted with all of the prophets, the law and the prophets. He would have known these things inside out. And he would have told you, if you would have asked him at the beginning of his life, you know, you know, the middle part of his life, if you would have asked him, Do you, are you passionate about your relationship with God? He would have said, yes. 
I'm, pursuing, I'm seeking to please God. And yet, we know, uh, you know, in Acts chapter 9, he took a major, major detour from being and gave up the prestige, the power, you know, the influence of, of being a, a Pharisee. He gave all that up to become a Jesus follower. And then he writes this, which today we don't see the contradiction between being a Jesus follower and a God believer. But it was a big, big, big deal in Paul's day. And Paul writes this, look at this, he says this, I'm praying that you're gonna be rooted and grounded in love that is found in Christ. It's found in Jesus. And then he says, if you're rooted in Jesus, you're gonna be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. The fullness of God. In other words, Paul was saying, I thought I found the fullness of God in the law. That's what I would have said. You can find the fullness of God in the law. But then he says, no, no, no. I'm praying that you're going to be rooted and grounded, not in the law, but rooted and grounded in Christ. Which is remarkable. Now, Paul, having been a Pharisee, having been a scribe or an educator and and a, a teacher of the law, Paul would have thought a lot with his head. He was very smart. Very, very smart. And he would have thought a lot with his head. So when he had an encounter with Jesus, in, he had a real encounter on the road to Damascus. We read in Acts chapter 9. He had an encounter with Jesus and he had an abrupt change. It also indicates in the scriptures that there was about three years before, before you know, before Paul began his ministry from the time in which he had this encounter. And in those three years, I guarantee you that Paul's like, okay, something just happened to me, and I have an encounter with Jesus. I got to figure this out with my head. And, and, and then he, he literally says to the church in Ephesus, this is going to be a love. This, is, this Christ is a love that's not going to make sense all up here. But yet he would have studied out, and he wanted to know, and Paul wanted to know, that he knew that he knew that he knew that Jesus was who he said he was. And Paul was most likely a prove-it-to-me kind of skeptic. And I want to say to you, to, you know, today that I'm, kind, I'm the same way. I'm kind of like prove-it-to-me just because I grew up with it and just because somebody told me. And, and can I say this out loud? And I promise you lightning won't strike because I said it in the first service and I moved. I know, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't. But I'm saying this to you. I don't want to just believe because the Bible says so. I want to know that I know that I know who Jesus is, who God is, and that this is true. And I want to invite you to be a skeptic. Just like me. Because, listen, truth is not threatened by skepticism or questions. Jesus was never threatened by questions. He invited them. In fact, he taught more with questions than he did with answers. And I want, I want us to be able to kind of be skeptical of these things. And Paul would have had the same thing. The encounter, miraculous, <laughs> that wouldn't have satisfied enough for Paul. He would have probably studied a little bit more. And what would he have gone to to study? The first thing he would have gone to, he would have gone right back to his knowledge, to what he had known. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, 
If Jesus was who he said he was, then all of the law and the prophets would have pointed toward the Messiah. And in particular, Paul would have been looking for Jesus in prophecy. Right? Because right from the very beginning, the proof, what he was looking for, right from the very beginning, he had been looking for and saying, we are looking for the Messiah. And he would, I guarantee you, he would have went back and read the law, read the prophets, and went looking for Jesus and see if Jesus is really in there. Now, this is, this is what's fascinating. I, I, I'm hoping you're a note taker today because we're going to give you some Bible school. Is that Okay. If you're not a note taker, you're going to be a picture taker because you're going to want, you're going to want to you're going to want to and I encourage you to research this stuff yourself. Don't just believe it because I say so, or that, that that I'm giving you what kind of satisfied me. This is one of the things that's amazing. Some scholars believe about prophecy. Some scholars believe that there are more than 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, more than 300 that he, Jesus fulfilled. And these prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of them is, let alone all of them, is staggeringly improbable. Okay, like, if not impossible. In fact, I, I want to read a quote uh, to you from Peter Stoner, who's the chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. Can you say smart? You, you, okay, and this is, what, this is what Peter Stoner, Chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy, this is, what, this is what he set out trying to do a mathematical equation on the, the, the odds of Jesus fulfilling even just eight. Not 300, eight. If Jesus had just fulfilled eight of the prophecies given him, here's the math of that. This is what he in his team research. And this is what he said. He says, let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. He had to go to university to figure that out. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You know, that's not the wow part. <laughs> Hold on. He says, but suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars. 10 to the power of 17, that's a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all the state two feet deep. Wow. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the mess thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say it's the right one. What chance would he have in getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having all of them come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom." One in a chance of 10 to the power of 17 if for just eight of them. And scholars are saying Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. Whoa. Now, be skeptical. But here's an example of just three of them. And it, psalmist said in Psalm, look at how specific these are. The psalmist said in Psalm 22, verse 18, 
they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's specific. We know at the cross that when Jesus, as Jesus was being crucified, that the soldiers took his clothes and divided, and divided them among them and cast lots for his, his garments. Zacharias said in Zechariah 9, verse 9, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Uh, shout, daughter Jerusalem. That's a very specific city. <laughs> See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Can you imagine the prophet getting this vision and going, no, 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 this is wrong. I want to change this. Kings don't come victorious riding into a city on a donkey. They come in on a horse. They come in triumphant. And he says they're coming in victorious. Lowly is his next word. Wait, what? And yet we know that Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the crucifixion, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey uh, uh, and, and being heralded victorious with palms being laid down on, and before him and people shouting Hosanna to our king. Very specific. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Right? Which means... God with us, okay, prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It's amazing. So Paul would have looked at some of these prophecies, and it's amazing because I can imagine Paul sitting down and reading these things, and then it also says in, in Galatians that Paul invited Peter and John and a lot of the disciples, and he, said, he specifically says in Galatians he spent time with Peter, and he began to grill Peter about Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus and his life and his ministry and, and the events around the death and around the resurrection. And tell me again, tell me the stories. And as Peter would tell him the stories, I'm sure that Paul all of a sudden went, wait a second, that's written. Zacharias said that. Wait a second, Micah said that. Wait a second, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I know that Hosea said that. I know, I know Isaiah said this. And all of a sudden he began to put all these things together as evidence. And in listening to the stories from Peter and from John and tell me about his life, he would begin to, to see some of the evidences of, of not just what Jesus said, but what Jesus did and said. His life became evidence. Now you can, and I challenge you again, encourage you, invite you to be skeptical like I was because, because again, all that I had ever been taught growing up, I grew up in the church. All I had ever been taught is what the Bible says and been told, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. But then I started saying, well, what if the Bible's not true? What if we've been duped? What if man made this up? What if? And I had to go looking for more. And here's, here's what's fascinating to me. And I, I wanted to go and look and said, because I thought and skeptically looking at it and evaluating it, I started to think, okay, if Jesus's life happened like the Bible says it happened and the events surrounding Jesus's life happened, come on, these would have been, these would have been recorded by more than just Bible scholars. These would have been recorded by historians because this turned the then known world upside down. There's events that happen, miracles that happen, stuff that you're going, somebody's going to write this down because this is abnormal. Right? So I went looking. And I was pleased to find that not only are there one 
or two or a few historians that record the events around the life of Jesus, but there were many. In fact, I was happy to discover that there's more evidence that Jesus lived than Julius Caesar lived, that there's more historically recorded about the life of Jesus than any other historical figure around and about those times. In fact, I'm just, if you're skeptical, I'm going to give you a list of names of some of the historians outside of the Bible that record the life of Jesus, the events around Jesus' life, and also around the events around his followers and some of the things, so that you can study it yourself. There's, there's historians, non-biblical historians like Cornelius Tacitus, who's a Roman historian. He wrote events. There's uh, so tonight, I'm, I'm going to butcher these names. I'm sorry. Um, secretary to Roman uh, Emperor Hadrian. Um, there's, there's Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that was a Jewish historian specifically around the life and times of Jesus and never became a believer as far as we know, but he recorded a lot of these events. There's Pliny the Younger, a Roman author and government official. There's Emperor Trajan, who, who wrote uh, uh, you know, accounts of the life of Jesus and especially, you know, especially around the, some of the followers in, of Jesus. There's Emperor Hadrian who did the same. Even the Jewish rabbinic Talmud, which is, which is you know, the Judaism kind of Bible, that's kind of their records, Jewish historians who don't believe in Jesus, in fact, were doing everything they possibly can to squash the following. They recorded events around the life of Jesus and, and his followers. Uh, Lucian of, who's a, of Samosota, who's a Greek historian, a Syrian historian, Mara Bar uh, Serapian, another one who wrote events, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, uh, Quadratus, uh, Justin Martyr. All of these, these are non-biblical historians who write accounts of Jesus or of his followers in and around those times. And what do they write? Okay, again... This is not, I'm not taking this from the Bible. I'm taking this from these historical accounts. What were they right? This is what they agreed on. Here's what they agreed on. They agreed that Jesus lived in Judea, an actual geographical location that still exists today. They agree that Jesus lived around the year zero to 33 AD. They agree that Jesus was born Jewish. They agree that Jesus was an esteemed teacher, even though many of them didn't believe or follow. They believe, they they agreed and recorded that Jesus was an esteemed teacher. They agreed that Jesus' teachings were considered honorable. They agreed that Jesus had a reputation for displaying God-like abilities or performing miracles. They agreed that Jesus' followers worshipped him as a God or as God. They agreed that and write and record that Jesus interacted with another well-documented historical figure, Pontius Pilate. They record and write about Jesus being crucified near Jerusalem. They write and record, and this is where I, some of the things that I went looking for. They write and record that there was an earthquake and a period of darkness. Remember, the Bible records that Jesus on the cross, and all of a sudden, the, the, in the middle of the day, the, the sky went dark. And I'm thinking, that's, a, that's an event that's something 
I went looking, and historically it's recorded that there was an earthquake and a period of darkness in and around the times of Jesus' crucifixion. And some you know, speculate that could have been a solar eclipse or a volcanic eruption darkening the sky, but they record the, this event happened. They record that Jesus' followers claimed that he rose from the dead. They uh, proclaim that the disappearance of Jesus' body following his very public crucifixion recorded by Roman and Jewish historians, very public crucifixion caused an uproar in the ancient world. And they also record that Jesus' followers began spreading his teachings. And very curiously, this is, what, this is what they record, very curiously, the movement multiplied even after Jesus' recorded death. In fact, that's all non-biblical historical stuff that, that's recorded from multiple sources. And, and one of those sources is Flavius Josephus. And Josephus, a, a Jewish historian who never became a Christian, never became a Jesus follower as far as we know, yet he wrote this in his, in his accounts. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Okay, And he says, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Then he goes on, he says, and accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning who the prophets have recounted Wonders. In other words, Josephus, a Jewish historian, not only records it, but he goes, yeah, a lot of this lines up <laughs> with the, the so-called Messiah. He could perhaps be the Messiah. Josephus, listen, Josephus never became a believer. And we look at that and we go, well, how could he not? I don't know. But you know what also is interesting? That Paul, the expert the teacher, the one who knew the law, the prophets, Paul didn't originally become a believer as well. That he lived in the time of Jesus and he would have witnessed this. He would have been in, in grooming and being trained in the same time. He would have been younger, but he would have been groomed and trained in the same time. He would have been alive and witnessed all these events and he didn't become a believer. In fact, he became such a skeptic that he became an anti-believer. He tried to do everything within his power and at this time he had power to squash the movement, the Jesus following after Jesus' death. In fact, it records in the book of Acts that he actually stood watch while Stephen was being martyred. It records that he would round up Christians, the Jesus followers, and, and persecute them and imprison them, and that he was doing whatever he possibly could until Jesus interrupted his one trip to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, he was doing everything he could to stop it. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he went from being a skeptic to being a believer. All of a sudden, he went from being a persecutor to being a promoter. And all of a sudden, he changed. And all of a sudden, he wrote this. Now think about this. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said this, If Christ, if Jesus, had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now look at the power of what he just said. The power of what he just said Think about this. This is Paul, 
The educated one who's always believed in God. The one who's always believed in the law and believed the Old Testament, the Bible. The prophets, he would believe that he, to his grave, he would believe it. Paul, saying without Jesus, and in particular without his resurrection from the dead, everything I've grown up believing about God, everything I currently believe about God is useless. Wow. So not only did he go from being a skeptic, he became a hardcore believer to where he is saying everything is worth being thrown out if Jesus did not truly rise from the dead. Well, then you look at some other evidence surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. And to me, one of the greatest evidences that I discovered on my own was the reaction of some of Jesus' followers. Because here's what is remarkable to me. Some of Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, in particular the 12, they believed, and we see this before Jesus went to the cross, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But their reactions pre-cross and during the cross are evidence to me that they might have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they did not believe yet that he was God. That they may be in their preconceived ideas of, of Jewish training they would have believed that the Messiah was simply a man who was a savior to save Israel from the powers or entrapments of Rome. But that he doesn't necessarily, wouldn't be God. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus died on the cross, they scattered, going, it's a waste of time. It's all of that. When Jesus rose again and appeared to them, all of a sudden, these guys who scattered, who were afraid, who denied knowing, even knowing Jesus in front of other people, like ran away. These people suddenly took a stand. Like, and, and the movement didn't just, the movement exploded. In fact, one of the recorded, one of the most amazing recorded statements is Thomas, who was the last disciple, as recorded historically, the last disciple to claim that he saw Jesus. Thomas, he didn't even believe Peter he didn't believe John when they said, we saw him. He's like, I, I doubt it. He's like, I, I won't believe, Thomas said this, I won't believe until I see for myself. And then when Jesus appeared before Thomas, Thomas said this, my Lord and my God. He didn't just say, oh, great prophet, oh, great teacher. He's like, my Lord, my God. Thomas would spend the rest of his days in South India preaching Jesus as God and giving his life, believing that. Peter, Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus to a servant girl at the crucifixion, he's the one who says, I'm with you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Jesus gets arrested, and, and Peter is like, uh-oh. A servant girl who has no power to do anything to Peter. And Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus appears and suddenly Peter has this courage, this newfound courage. And only months later would be preaching that Jesus is God and get arrested for it and stand before the same, the same tribunal, the same 
accusers that sentenced Jesus just months before to the cross and said crucified. And he's standing before the same high priest, the same people, the same council. And Peter stands before them, his life very much being on the line. And all of a sudden, Peter said, and they, they tell him, we're get, they persecute him, they whip him, they torture him, and they say, you shall not speak of the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, in the in the midst of that trial, Peter says these words, and he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Amen. Again, consider the source and consider to whom he's talking to, because this sentence would have been a death sentence. Because whom he's talking to they believe there's only one God, and they believe that, that you know, Yahweh is his name, and they believe they're worshiping him, they're believing God, and when Peter stands up and says, salvation doesn't come from your law. Salvation doesn't come even just by Yahweh. Salvation comes by Jesus. Yeah. Knowing that by making that statement, Could cost him his life, and yet he had boldness. Paul would later go on and say these words, and this is fascinating, again, considering who wrote it. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and Timothy being the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. It's fascinating is that Paul always believed there was one God. But Paul suddenly said, that God I believed in, that Yahweh, that creator, that almighty, that God was manifest to us in Jesus Christ. And that he was truly not just a man, not just a teacher, not just a prophet, not just a representative. He was and is God. Any of you heard of C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis was an Oxford scholar. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. C.S. Lewis was an author uh, that popular works such as the Narnia series. And C.S. Lewis was a skeptic. And he's very, very smart. And he's, he sums up what I'm the battle of the skepticism and the discovery of Jesus in an interview that he gave to the BBC. And this is what he said. He said this, that is one great thing we must not say. And to which they were asking the question is, so was Jesus just a, a good teacher, just a, just a man, a representative of God, a prophet? Was he that? And then C.S. Lewis is like, that's one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. You must, I like this, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being merely a good human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Whoa. Here's the thing. Paul wasn't persecuted for believing in God. In fact, Rome financed the Jewish synagogue, rebuilt it for them, encouraged them to worship God. You can see the relationship between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and, and, and Pilate, and they, they worked together. And Paul was not, he was celebrated as a Pharisee by Rome until, until he started proclaiming Jesus as God. Jesus, C.S. Lewis sums it up, Jesus is a very polarizing figure. You see it today. We're challenged, aren't we in society? We're challenged for tolerance, acceptance, and tolerance. Of, and I, I, I applaud that. By the way, Christianity's led the way in all, all of that throughout history. I, I, I love, but in all of the tolerance talk and all the acceptance talk, the one thing that is still scrutinized, rejected, come on, haven't you been rejected a time or two by saying you're a Christian or you're a Jesus follower? Jesus is a very polarizing figure. And, and C.S. Lewis sums it up and says, you cannot say that Jesus was just a man. You cannot say, because as just a man, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or God. That's it. And C.S. Lewis, as a skeptic, just like Paul, as a skeptic, just like me, as a skeptic, did his research, and as an atheist, he came to this conclusion, and he said this. He finished the statement by saying, now it seems to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Former atheist. <laughs> and I love how he says it, no matter how strange. Because it's strange, isn't it, that God could occupy a man and be a man and God at the same time. Like, that doesn't, our, our minds can't compute. It's strange. It's terrifying. It's unlikely. And yet, In my mind, conclusions, it's true. And if it's true, come on. It changes everything. And as C.S. Lewis said, you have a choice. You cannot just ignore who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, he is God, 
He is the hope of your salvation. As Paul would have said, if he did not rise from the dead, then we are of most to be pitied because we are still left in our sin. But if he rose from the dead, that makes him God. And if he is God, then we can be saved. Here's today's takeaway. Jesus is God. Period. Jesus is God. You have a choice. And I have a choice. We either accept him as liar, lunatic, or Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being who you are. And Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this earth, living amongst us, God with us. Thank you for sacrificing yourself on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for rising again from the dead. Thank you for inviting us to relationship with you. Amazing. We declare, we believe. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with God, you have a decision. You have a decision to make. And when you make that decision, if you decide that Jesus is God, then Paul said this. It's amazing. He said, you don't have to jump through religion or a bunch of hoops or be good enough or change anything. He said, all you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead and you will be saved. So I'm gonna lead us in a prayer that confesses that Jesus is God. If you've never made this decision, never confessed it, this is your moment, this is your opportunity. We'll do it together, we'll do it with you. And I invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if you're watching online, pray with me wherever you're watching from. Let's pray, let's repeat this after me. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, for accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask everyone in the room to close their eyes and bow your heads out of respect to the people around you. If you prayed this prayer for the first time, would you just boldly raise up your hand and give me a wave and saying, yeah, pastor, I prayed this prayer for the first time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look around one more time. Make sure I didn't miss anyone. Awesome. If you pray this prayer for the first time and you're watching online, just click like on the comment I've decided in the comment section below and our team will reach out and give you a Bible. It's our free gift to you. Amen. Isn't God good?